0: This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder.
1: Object to the text!
0: My guest for this episode is Julian Brigden. Now, Julian is a master of models. In putting together his macro theses, which have presently called major moves in everything from inflation and the dollar to the most popular manias in the stock market, he carefully studies intermarket relationships and correlations to come up with a framework grounded in real data rather than arcane theories and formulas. This practical and highly refined approach has served him well for the 10 years he's been running MI2 Partners and for years prior to that. In this episode, Julian discusses how he developed this uniquely insightful approach and how he uses it today to inform his own trading and that of his many institutional and retail clients. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Julian Brigden. You wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep and sheep get slaughtered. Julian Brigden, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I'm, I'm uh, really excited to do this. We uh, And thank you for making the trip from Vail. Oh, whole hour. yeah, not too <laughs> Well, I offered to make the trip to, to yeah. Vail, but I appreciate you coming here to the mobile podcast studio. Um, I, the first thing i got to ask you is we're sitting here on a gorgeous summer day in Breckenridge. And, uh, you know, what was it that first brought you to this slice of heaven in the Rocky Mountains?
1: So, yeah, look, it's a long way from uh, from home. I'm a little boy from uh, just outside London. So, um, so what happened is 10 years ago, we launched the business. We launched it. We were living, my ex-wife and I were living in uh, New York, or just outside. And as the business grew a little bit, we realized that we had flexibility. We had this ability to go and shift and spend time somewhere now, We had to work, as you know, Jesse, right? Uh, You're plugged into the machines the whole time. But the reality is we could. And we started to come out here a lot. We were already coming out for skiing. um, And we started to realize we were living out here and working there. And we thought, can't we combine the two? And in that sense, I guess we were ahead of this sort of COVID world. Thank God we got into our real estate when we did. Um, And that's exactly how it happened. That's how we ended up here. Well, you you were a, a trendsetter
0: that <laughs> the, the trend accelerated during COVID. But yeah, it seems like this work remotely thing is a trend that that uh, I mean, I, I guess I started it, doing it 20 years ago right. when I moved from LA to, to Bend, and uh, yeah, I guess we're both ahead of the curve in terms right. of this. But I mean, I can't imagine a better place to to want to headquarters, you, you know, your business.
1: Uh, no, it's MIT, pretty. It so. is a pretty special place. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, having sort of Powder Day rules where, you know, if there's more than six-inch powder, no one turns up before lunchtime. It's it's a pretty class problem. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) absolutely. To go back
0: in time a little bit, I'm curious to know, what was it that first got you excited or interested in learning
1: more about markets and macro? So I sort of fell into it a little bit by accident. So I was at university. um, I did this bizarre degree course when I spent two years in the UK, two years in West Germany, as it was known in those days. And... I had this uh, summer program, which I did in Austria, and I came back and I needed to fund myself because I hung out with all these Americans who spent all this money drinking and boozing and and having a good time. So I went to go and try and find a summer job. I couldn't find one because they'd all gone. And I thought, oh, I'll just take a permanent job and jack it in after six weeks and go back to university. And I thought, well, maybe I can get a job in the markets because that sounds kind of fun. And I was walking along London Bridge and I walked into one of those sort of temp agencies that they had. And there was an advertisement for a junior in a trading room. And so I applied. I didn't tell them I was only going to do it for six weeks. Got the job, fell in love with this buzz that was in the trading room and basically ended up putting my university on hold and worked for a whole year for Salomon and just fell in love, and fell in love with markets, fell in love with movement, fell in love with the lifestyle and the PL that those days that you used to get, and then just got into, as I started to get more into it, I switched eventually into sales, and one way that I focused on attracting clients was to write a narrative about the market, a commentary on the market, and I did that for a while, went back, you know, flitted between trading and sales, Eventually moved to this company called Medley Global Advisors. You may have come across it in the old days. And it was a policy consultancy think tank. And so they'd literally go and see Greenspan and then we'd go and flog it to our clients for an exorbitant fee. If you could only get that now as an independent consultant, I'd be very, very happy. Uh, An exorbitant fee. And um, that's when I really fell in love with that side of the market, having that sort of insight, that policy sort of background. Moved back into the sell side. Um, and tried to combine the two because I had all these really high-powering clients from my medley days because you didn't talk to the junior on the trading desk. You talked to the principal of the firm. And so I had those relationships, parried that in, started writing my own commentary, started to play around with, because I didn't have the policy insight, I was like, what do I have? And started playing around with building leading models. And the whole thing with a lot of our models, and you've seen some Jesse, and you do, from time to time, I post them on Twitter. Is I'm taking a piece of information that exists today. I'm not making a forecast. I'm not saying, oh, I think oil prices are going to 100. Oil prices are 72 or whatever they are. What does that mean? What does that mean for inflation? What does that mean for industrial production? What does that mean for all these things that we care six to nine months out? And that's the way I do it. Oh, excuse me. <coughs>
0: Yeah no, so but we got to have the beverages because <laughs> exactly do so I don't much know where they're talking. You get horse fluff as well in, the, in it the, the. It is for those who are listening and can't see. We are in the middle of a like I think it's an aspen or birch forest, yeah. and it's snowing in the summertime. It's like literally <laughs> these white. You, you know, you can't go outside without getting covered in all this white stuff. So yeah, the allergies are,
1: are yeah. going berserk. So, p- I apologize if I do that again, ladies. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. But uh, but yeah, so that's how I got into it, and I really loved it. I really loved it. Well, fast forward to today. Yep,
0: and your and Mi two is celebrating its tenth anniversary. Congratulations! Woo! That's an awesome accomplishment. Yeah. Yep. Well, I guess you know it's it's clear you have a passion for models and for the writing side of it. I guess what my question is: what was it that inspired you to start your own firm in the
1: first place? So, actually, I got really, really lucky. So, I'd been writing this commentary on the market, sitting on the sell side. I got 08 and 09 right uh, from a trading perspective. I, there was a time, and there's a Q&A coming up on uh, Real Vision on this, where there was a time in 09 where I thought, whoa, I've got this right. And then I thought, oh, my God, I might have this so right that I may not be able to benefit the end of this because I might not have a seat. In fact, none of us might have a seat. This whole thing could collapse. But anyway, we came out of it and a couple of clients came up to me and said, congratulations, you've done really well. You shouldn't be working for that French bank anymore. You should have your own gig. And here's a check. And I literally got funded for my first year out of the bank. And so I sort of called my ex-wife and I said, I think we're up our company. I've got this big check in my hand, literally. And she went, okay. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it,
0: you see so many people that want to do something like that, and it's almost, you know, you see the people who succeed at it and starting their own firm or whatever it is, you know, jumping off. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's almost as if it's meant to be. Like, it, you know, right. it, it just happens,
1: you know. It and, and, does happen. And, and I think our approach was always... Look, I mean, there's some people who do some fantastic economics work, but our approach has always been different. Our approach was always to try and create the process that you have within a macro hedge fund or a family office or you know a mutual fund is, how do I make money out of this information? Because I can correctly predict that GDP is going here, I can correctly predict that inflation is going there, but how do I make money out of that? And so my thought process was very quickly to bring in people who had skills that built upon mine. So I was kind of doing the, core view the the core models giving us if you want to bias is growth picking up is it slowing down what's inflation doing you know etc etc and then build a group of people who've literally run money uh because i haven't um and that's what we did and then from there we were able to say okay so the view on inflation is this okay well if that's the view on inflation what's the ultimate trade what should we be looking at How's the market position? And these are skills that people who've run portfolios have. And then we've got other guys who say, OK, if you think it's buns, uh, this is the, the level we're watching. And by the way, it's today and push the trigger now. And so it's it's very much that sort of process, Jesse, that we try and follow the discipline of the models built with the trading acumen skill portfolio management skills that my other colleagues bring.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that's totally foreign to me coming from, you know, bottom-up, right. you know, micro focus type of opportunities to, to really think of it in terms of top-down right. you know, macro-focuses. So I guess my question, next question would be, I guess, what is the, the mission uh, of the firm uh, and, and who's really the intended audience for the research you, you put out?
1: So there are two real products. There's the Institutional MI2 product. Um, and that is uh, that goes to a pretty wide range of institutional clients. So kind of classic macro hedge fund, a lot of equity hedge funds these days, um, family offices, some mutual funds. And there it's there's a different time frame. So that's why we t- typically end up talking about a process. I mean, for example, we the first piece that we wrote on inflation was in March of last year on the lows. Yeah. We said, we wrote this thing, MIT 2 Trader, inflation. We highlighted how inflation was cyclical. We highlighted how break-evens had been crushed because they got sold off by the risk parity boys. They were their inflation hedges. So when they had their VAR shot go across the risk parity portfolios, they dumped these things. And we kind of got into that. But it set us up mentally for this process. So you, you have a timeframe where you start to educate people. That carried on all of last year. The first piece we wrote in this year was inflation's the most important variable in 2021. And that helps guys who are much more slow moving. I mean, if you're an institutional big pension fund, you can't go whack like that. Although I am always a bit surprised when I meet those guys, quite how many go, oh, nice call on this. You know, we managed to whack them out. And you're like, did it really move the needle at all on this hundreds of billion dollar fund? Right. But they do. But it is ultimately, even the guys who are more tactical and active, it's really about making these guys money. Yeah. They have their own process. You don't manage the risk for them because they'll say, oh, I've got an inflation view. I'm going to express it like this. They're smart professionals. So that's the MI2 product. And then we have the Macro Insider product, which we do with Raoul. And a ton of that, don't get us wrong, is about making money for people. And in a way, Jesse, you get paid less for doing more. You really have to here's the entrance, here's the stop, here's what our target is, you have to manage that risk much more closely, much more than you would do with a with a professional, because they have different variables, um, but a lot of that is about education, and it's a lot about, this is how we're thinking about the world, this is what we're watching, these are these variables, this is how you should think about these things, um, and... So those are kind of the two distinct audiences that we have. And then I suppose I've got a third audience, which is kind of the Twitter follower, that sort of social media space. Yeah, which is really what
0: drew media work in right. the models and i and i want to get into some of the models and different frameworks that you utilize but b- before we do uh, i'm just really curious in, in putting together all of this research and whatnot uh, i guess i'm curious to know just what does your daily or weekly process look like where do you spend most of your time in terms of research and, and all
1: that stuff so i'm constantly going through the models, seeing if anything is fundamentally changed and i suppose my biggest workload comes probably three to four times a year where I write kind of a quarterly outlook and I'll go through all the models I'll kind of look at things I'll try and square the inconsistencies and there always are them between the models you know what's this one telling me why is that one going down that one going up you know that sort of thing and then we set out if you want our stall and that doesn't change very often I mean you don't macro doesn't really change that often i mean growth is picking up it's slowing down we're near a high we're near a low etc etc and that's kind of what i will spend most of the intense time now i write an awful lot during the the year as well or between those periods but often that's shaping the direction in which we do beyond that we have daily calls i have the whole team and there are six of us uh, professionals, I think we we worked it out the other day. We've got like 154 years of collective marketing experience. We're all old. Um, and uh, we shape our views on these conference calls. And we hash out ideas. We hash out thought proceeds. Um, and then we have a chat forum where we, you know, hash them out again if something starts to change during the day. And a couple of guys are really tasked with watching positions and possibly risks or you know suggested positions and risks and so on and so forth so that is how we do it i spend a lot of time looking through the economic data to me that's very important to see how that's trending see if it's fitting with the overall framework do we need to change something um spending time looking at the policy side because whether we like it or not this is not a free market anymore these are manipulated markets um doesn't mean that macro isn't important. I think macro is extraordinarily important, but it's different than it used to be. It used to be that policymakers would react, the macro would react to that, and then that would shape markets. Now it's the macro happens, policymakers respond, and it's the policy response that, in a way, drives the underlying markets, right. not necessarily the macro anymore. As we've seen, they can be divorced for long periods of time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, there's a quote of yours, um, that just stuck with me, and I was reading your research in preparing for this interview and that was um, just kind of a lead-in to one of your reports right. and that was as is typical with our macro work at MIT. the starting point was a model and that's like i mentioned before that was really what drew me to you know wanting to have this discussion right. was was your models I think they're just you know they're, they're brilliant um, but I, 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 I would like to know just where does this focus on models come from what was it in your experience or past that, that you really kind of decided that the models can be, you know, drive, but, drive the framework.
1: So it was really an experience that I had when I was sitting at Credit Eric Call. I hired a guy who was an old friend, uh, a client, uh, who was chief of commerce to Ericsson and, uh, Jonas, uh, too uh, as great Swedish guy, uh, and, uh, like seven foot four, um, and thin as a rake, and I hired Jonas, and I would loved Jonas's work, and I really respected his work for a long, long time when he was at Ericsson, and I wanted him to be strategist uh, for Credit Agricole in New York, and um, he built these macro models, and it really did get me really addicted to these things as leading, and it was, he went on subsequently to go to Nordea, And form that group there. So a lot of the stuff you see tweeted uh, from the Nordea guys originally came from Jonas. And he sort of inspired that group and he inspired me. And it was just, look, you can build these incredibly complicated econometric models, right? These DSGE central bank things. And when you look at them and you read about them, you're like, oh my goodness they're only as good as the assumptions you make and i hate that right i mean because we don't you can't make assumptions right oh i can assume that inflation stays here i can assume that the propensity to consume stays like this well COVID comes along and blows all those things out of the water so i would rather start particularly from a market perspective because we don't care about two years out right we care about i mean arguably one minute out, but in a, certainly in the macro space, three to six months typically, right? If it hasn't worked in three to six months and generally doesn't work. And so you can pretty much get a pretty decent lead on that with stuff that exists today. I don't need to build some vast, uberly complicated econometrics model. I can take data that exists today. I can take raw material input prices. It will give me a lead on what inflation's doing. I can take consumer confidence. It'll give me a lead on, Retail sales, right? All of those sorts of things. And so that seemed to me to be the the real sweet spot. And what it does for me, Jess, is it really anchors my view. I'm not going to fight the model, right? If I see inflation rising in the model, I'm going to be looking for things to try and take advantage. You know, is there something mispriced in the market where people, for whatever reason, have got skewed such... A hard, a hard direction the other way uh, that I can take advantage of that, and that's what the models do. They give you that repetitive process, and they give you that firm kind of underlying macro commitment.
0: Yeah, and I think as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, one of the, the things that I, I find that makes your valuable, your your, uh, your models so valuable, is that they aren't based on you know these complex theories and things. It's literally, you know, like you mentioned earlier, oil did this. So what does that mean? Historically, there are all these relationships, intermarket relationships that, uh, sorry, allergies again. (laughs) (laughs) It's happening to me this time. Um, you know, that, that, uh, it's not hard to understand how other markets should react right. when, when you can look at in the past, these things have are right. been highly correlated. Yeah. And so one of your models, I'd like to dig into some of these yeah. models specifically. Um, you know, I think you recently wrote that your inflation model uh, in particular suggests that core CPI um, could potentially reach low double digits before 2023. Um, this would seemingly blow the transitory narrative out of the water. Um, what, I guess, what are the factors in, this, in the inflation model uh, that you use that, to come up with these types of targets?
1: So, so this one is not an original thought. Um, one of my clients is, they're insanely smart, and they've been doing some work. They've been really keen up following our inflation narrative, and they sort of bought into it early, and now they're sort of building on it themselves. And one of the things that they went back and looked at, um, and they had a data set that was far superior to ours, is what happens when you get this combination of not only money supply growth or balance sheet growth, but also fiscal spending And it. We've been very, very keen to stress to people That there was a material difference the minute that you know this whole balance sheet expansion stuff right you can get asset price inflation and we've seen it obviously in spades right I mean you've only got to take the PE of the S&P and put it against the Fed's balance sheet to know what they have done to the equity market right and there obviously is some flow through to the real economy because of oil prices um, and when you inflate those but And we played all this and, you know, and those sort of things that said to us, you know, we're probably approaching some sort of cyclical peak. But when you look out and you look back at time, the big decider was fiscal. And we'd had it in our minds that an analogy that we've been playing for a long, long time, really four or five years since Trump came in, was this kind of mid-60s transference from the early 60s, a period of incredibly stable, low inflation, halcyon period in post-war economics, great returns in the equity market, great returns in the bond market. And then you got Johnson come in and just pump the economy, right? Vietnam War, um, the Great Society, fiscal spending, um, and uh, it really threw things out of kilter. And we've sort of been playing with this idea that fiscal is much more powerful. And so then when the Biden, you know, when we had that first round of fiscal spending really under Trump, that was the first wave of the inflation breakout, we thought. COVID came along and complicated that, and now the Biden administration just doubled down on it yet again. And so what intrigued us was the idea that this fiscal could be just much, much more powerful than just simply printing a shed load of money, right? which is what the Fed does. So it's that combination. So one of our clients took that and really ran with the idea. And they went back and they had this amazing data set, and they went back and looked, I think 120 years worth of data. In a hundred, they found 150 incidences stretched across, you know, 20 odd countries where you got an incident, both a big burst in money supply growth and rising fiscal spending at the time. And the combination was immensely powerful. When you started to put these thresholds in, um, you know, you've got to see X amount of fiscal spending as a percent of GDP and Y amount of money supply growth. Their conclusion was that history suggests going back, as I said, these 120 years, that the odds of at least 5% core CPI in the U.S. is now 90%. The lead is two years, okay? But the median forecast of the inflation was 15%. Just just that combination, Jesse, of, because up until now we've, you know, we could be dismissive of this. We've had essentially just balance sheet expansion, right? We just have asset inflation. But when you take fiscal, which takes time to filter in, right, and you take that money supply growth, where's it going to go? It's going to go into the real economy. And the risk is, is that you do it when you look at it. And so the model we built took that into account, took some other stuff into account, um, also put in um, some thresholds on the kind of the limits of growth, so kind of an output gap thesis, which is exactly what, you know, we're not alone in this concern, right? Larry Summers has said, you know, he came out with that great quote a few months ago, I think I put it in the piece where he said, you know, this looks like worse than the 60s because we're shoving this much money, this much fiscal, this much money supply into an economy. And I think he assumed that the output gap was 9%, recent estimates have put it a lot narrower than that where does this power hose of pressure go
0: yeah I, and, and I, I, if I i want to discuss that because i have i have thoughts on on uh, you know the, the fiscal married with monetary too but my my first thing i just want to ask is it's really cool for me to hear that this client feedback that you have it right. seems like there's a lot of this you know uh, really good kind of uh, intellectual you know um, simmering that happens right. between you know you and your clients and yeah. and that and that's just a huge benefit oh, from doing, doing what you do right, right. I mean, just putting your stuff out there and then having intelligent people read it and apply their own framework to it and you know it's it's that, that's such i mean yeah we do
1: so as i said we i spend a lot of time doing these sort of quarterly three times a year kind of big picture views and then we sort of typically pre-COVID would hit the road and go and see people face to face and in those meetings you get a ton of feedback you get a ton of feedback JC. I mean and actually in a way COVID was better it was a bit stressful because I was trying to do you know tens of calls and they all tend to be jammed in in the morning Colorado being seven hours out of London and five out of New York or oh, so two out of New York you know you would be I would be on conference calls for a long time and everyone was sitting at home and no one seemed to have a time limit in an office. It's like, you've got an hour spit it out. We'll give you five minutes after that for Q and a bye bye. When they're all sitting at home, these calls would go on for like an hour and 45 minutes. I mean, one went on so long as you said to the guy, look, I really need to go to the loo. I'll be back in two minutes. If you want to stay, that's fine. I've got time, but I really need to go to the loo now. You know, I'm a 55 year old male. It doesn't work. It doesn't work anymore. Um, but the feedback is amazing and you, you can get a great view on how people are positioned, sometimes it's really good. You can see opportunities, sometimes you come. I had one a couple of years ago and I went, I went, oh my God, they're all the wrong way you know, They're all this way round. Oh, and I had to write this very tactful piece afterwards, but we write this piece called, you know, Thoughts on the Road where we kind of come out afterwards and try and distill these views for people. Uh, for the rest, of, for for, every, for all the clients in general, but it's incre- that feedback loop is incredibly valuable. Yeah. it's incredibly valuable.
0: And, you know, I've seen that since I've been, you know, writing stuff and putting stuff out there. You, you get a group of people that that get to know you and yeah. your own, your own process so well that they start applying it in areas where you're not looking maybe right. and bringing ideas to you. And yep. I mean, it's just wonderful. Yeah, so absolutely. That's, that's really, really a, a tremendous value, and then you're being able to share that with the rest of your you yes. know, readers bringing you back to um you know fiscal and monetary policy you mentioned you know um i think the parallel to the 60s and i'm, yeah. and I'm curious about this because it did seem to me that with the trump tax cuts and, and kind of blowing out the deficit during an economic expansion right wasn't something we'd seen since you know that yeah. that period yeah. that earlier period and then to me you know seeing the kind of the the Problems in repo in 2019, and all kind of pointing to this—you uh, know—monetary policy is is our, you know—2019 was already—you f- know—failing the independence test. Correct. That okay, you know. So much debt issuance is, is, you know, underway now that the Fed is not going to be able to, you know, utilize quantitative easing in a discretionary way anymore. Yeah, yeah. They're now going to be forced to, to monetize right. whatever fiscal does. Yeah. So that seems like a sea change to me.
1: I just, I, I think, you know, it comes back, Jesse, I think, and I'm, I'm putting together this piece for a client for tomorrow and it's kind of probably going to be the... The, the essence of a new sort of quarterly update because these clients come to you and say oh can you just talk next week and you're like oh god and you re- they don't realise how much work right. has to get yeah. because when stuff's happened you're like actually the world's changed now I need you really <laughs> right. to, to think so I've sort of been neglecting my daughter for the last three days yeah. but the point is is um, yes I think we, we have seen a, a bit of a sea change and I think it goes back to this fundamental problem the US economy is so financialized now that ever allowing a correction in the equity market is in itself almost impossible. Um, if you look at the correlation between non-farm payroll, total non-farm payroll and the, the NYSE, you know, broad New York Stock Exchange, it's the same chart, <laughs> yeah. right? If you look at it for capex, it's the same charm. And the problem is, is you've, you've created this scenario where basically CEOs aren't paid to produce anything, right? We have a whole bunch of companies out there that really don't produce anything. Certainly, you know, last year, you know, we were funding all these never to be p and you know, companies, right? And they, but what they are paid to do, these CEOs, is inflate the asset price, infl- inflates the stock price, right? So the minute the stock price stops rising, for whatever reason, the immediate response is, let me try and cut costs, right? And the two things that you cut are employment and you shut CapEx. So the Fed is in this unenviable situation where having inflated these asset prices, and I think, as I said, if you go and take s and and you put them against the Fed balance sheet, you could argue that they've taken the PE from about 12 to 30. So having pushed up asset prices, having pushed up all asset prices, right housing right we you know this state's on fire now because people are trying to move in to, to a highly limited marketplace they've created this what i call they've created this crack addict, and they can't step back and the minute they step back they try to step back and let's be honest they tried it in uh 15 right they hiked they talked to it, they stopped expanding the balance sheet you know the Chinese devalued as the dollar went ballistic. You know the equity market corrected a little bit. A whole bunch of stuff went wrong, and then in 16 they all came back in and said, "Oops, sorry." Right at Davos, and we had that wave of global intervention to reflate global asset prices. They tried it in 18. It was a, took a little bit more this time because we had that fiscal kicker that was really surprising lift. So they had to shrink the balance sheet and raise rates. But where did we end up? Exactly the same bloody place minute the equity market corrects the minute the housing market starts to wobble they have to back off again and so the only get out of jail card now is that we somehow transfer some of that power over to fiscal we've done it to begin with in, in wave one i think there are clearly some questions about 2022 a fiscal cliff i'm very much in the camp of what i'm hearing from my buddies my medley buddies um In DC is we will get something through. Exactly how it gets through is a separate infrastructure bill. You know, some sort of bipartisan thing followed up by something bigger. Is it just a big reconciliation script? We'll get something through. Thing with tax increases delayed for a couple of years, so you do get net stimulus. But Democrats want to win the election, so they can't allow this thing to go cold turkey. and my bet is the problem is is we're at this point Jesse with these asset prices to such high levels That not only can we not allow these asset prices to drop even going sideways for the equity markets a problem as we've seen in the past But we can't sustain a level of interest rates Which is sufficiently high to naturally clear our debt levels to attract either domestic buyers or to take the risk of the higher inflation or even foreign buyers without choking off housing stocks and every other rate sensitive you know cars every other rate sensitive um, metric and so it leaves it to the fed and this comes back to something i've written about and i know i sent you the piece called this impossible trinity right how do we square or keep these metrics alive of, and there are three. There's the dollar. There's the bond market. And really, what you're saying there is, what level do we can we allow rates to rise to without choking off stocks and housing and car sales and every other rate sensitive sector when those underlying assets are so nosebleedingly expensive that even a 50 basis point jump in mortgage rates caused havoc. And you can see what's happening with with you know intention to buy data coming out of the housing market. Um, and at the same time, keep those assets inflated. If not, keep them constantly going up. And it's this, I think, that we will find, not maybe not immediately, but this, to me, is the end game. And to me, there's only one variable that has to get sacrificed. And I think that, to my mind, is the big trade. Does it happen, you know, in September, October, we get a classic equity market correction. I don't know. Does it take, like every other tightening cycle, like the, 2013 cycle, the 2015 into 18 cycle, is it sorry, 16 into 18? Does it take two years? I don't think so. Might be wrong, but I don't think so. But the end game to me, I'm afraid, is clear.
0: Well, it's interesting to me that you know that you use that term, the end game, because you know. Bill Fleckenstein and and, uh, Grant have done a great podcast series on this very topic. And Fleck, for a long time, has has suggested that the thing to take the printing press away from the Fed will be the bond market. And I know he's kind of maybe revised this view, but, uh, you know, it seems to me that they, they can't afford to let the bond market... Take away the printing press, and so right. they'll do anything, you know, yield curve control, what have you, to prevent that. And so the dollar really is the only outlet, correct? Uh, you know, for, for that because they have to prop up stock prices and and bond prices.
1: Yes, and it, and it goes back to once again we saw this in the late sixties. I mean, it's not so we had this period where, you know, we had super slow, stable inflation. I mean, anyone can sit in front of a chart package, pull up CPI during the sixties, and you'll see. Early 60s, beautiful, flat line, like plus or minus 0.2 either side of like 1.2. Beautiful. Johnson comes along, kicks off the fiscal spending, inflation pumps out, the Fed come along and they hit it. The equity market goes, the housing market goes, they panic just in a way like they did in 2018, early 19, right? They give back all that tightening to the market and they ease into this sort of ongoing fiscal expansion. Now, what was different back then was we had a pegged exchange rate mechanism. We had this in called Bretton Woods. It was a post-war uh, fixed exchange rate mechanism and the dollar was the linchpin. And if you go back and read the Fed minutes, they're really interesting and, but there are tons of them because they did them every two weeks. But basically they're watching kind of as the US economy is overheating through either the Johnson Great Society spending and the beginning of the Vietnam War spending, they're watching these capital account, uh, current account flows Suck dollars out of the system and gold, right? Gold is literally leaving the US. And they kind of try to balance the thing and they talk about the capital flows a lot. And what they really should have done is they should have said, Screw you, Johnson, okay? You're overheating the economy. We're an independent central bank, okay? Uh, one of our metrics is controlling the value of the dollar in Bretton Woods and we are raising rates. And we are raising rates a lot and we're going to choke off this excess growth and inflation, kill it in the bud. And if that means, you know, killing your ability to spend fiscally or that means sacrificing the equity market, fine. What did they do? Well, Bill Martin, who is the chairman of the Fed, went away and thought about this and he came out and he reiterated one of the founding cornerstones of the Fed and that is the Fed is the independent independent uh, within government but not independent of government. And so basically what he decided was to accommodate this Fed spending, Oh, sorry this uh, federal spending. How did he do it? He actually did QE. And not a lot of people realize that in the late 60s they actually undertook a policy of QE and they called it money debt financing and uh they basically bought bonds and did qe uh under the surface and so even though nominal bond yields rose massively right they went from four to eight between 65 and like 60 late 69 real yields fell 300 odd basis points because they just suppressed that rise in real yields so you supported the equity market you kept government happy Yes, bond yields rose, but not nearly as much as they should have done. But what was the ultimate end game? Well, it hung around because it wasn't a fixed exchange rate mechanism. But in the end, solving that impossible trinity between bonds, equities and currencies, they sacrificed the dollar. And when Bretton Woods went, the dollar imploded and dropped 50% over the next few years. And I think, as I look out and I look at, you know, these spinning plates, and how do they keep them all going, that has to be ultimately where we go.
0: Well, and that's a perfect lead-in to discussing your models for the dollar, your framework for the dollar. Um, you've suggested that uh, a forty-five, another 45% decline in the dollar is a distinct possibility. Um, can you describe some of the, the, the models that you use, uh, you know, for the dollar, or how you approach analyzing it? Yeah, I mean,
1: When we look at the long term stuff, I mean, um, there's lots of, we've got two or three different models that we use for that. They basically all encompass um, somewhat similar components. And that is, look, as the reserve currency, we are obliged to provide reserves to the rest of the world. So how do we do that? And it's that shifting in that demand and supply of those reserves that's very important to determine the value of the dollar. Um, We do it through a number of vehicles. Current account deficit, capital account deficit, um, some elements within in the capital account, budget deficit, it feeds into that too. So when you start playing around with those metrics, and as I said, those are data that you have today, what you find out is they're pretty damn good leading indicators of what typically has happened uh, in the dollar in the past. There can be some basis shifts as you'd imagine over, you know, when you run these things over like 20 or 30 years, but they're pretty consistent. And we've been doing do a pretty good job at supplying the world with dollars. I mean, you know, whether it's a current account deficit, a budget deficit, some of the capital flows, right? We're not paying a, an economic rate to foreigners to buy treasuries to take that risk, right? Because the dollar's already very high. So if they buy them now, what's the odds that the dollar could fall? Even if they don't believe my scenario, they're not getting paid a ton of interest rate on, on it, right? Real 10-year yields are now like minus 300-odd basis points, right? So when you look at those metrics and you put them together, they suggest that we could end up in this situation where we end up with, you know, we end up with this drift and then this big collapse. The other thing is about the dollar is the cycles are remarkably consistent since 72 in both amplitude and time. And so we've got a fun little one. I don't know whether I sent it to you where we take the dollar cycle um and we shift we have the whole dollar cycle and then we shift forward like a prior sector of the dollar cycle to we catch another cycle and basically in percentage change and time frame it's night on exactly the same this thing rises as it rises it is disinflationary it tends to blow things up there's a level where you tend to get emerging market crises whether whether you go back and you look in the 70s or the nine or the 90s right? Uh, Whether it's Latin America or in Asia, you get these crises where the dollar rises too much in percentage terms. Then the Fed kind of backs off. They go, oops, terrible, sorry. And then they try and sneakily like, okay, everything's calmed down. Now we can tighten again. And they do it and then they really create havoc. And then that's it, right? And then the dollar drops. And I think we hit that thing in March of last year. We refer to that final dollar up move as kind of the napalm run. So in other words, left to its own devices, If you didn't stop it in its tracks, this explosive dollar move, because remember, the dollar's denominator of pretty much all the assets that we trade. So as it rises in value, those things tend to fall. And those napalm runs tend to happen in risk-off environments. So, you know, the stock market's falling or commodity prices are getting crushed, gold's falling, and the dollar's rising too. So it's just compounding that downward move if you do not stop it. All you will be left with, just as you would be at the end of a napalm run, is a bunch of smoking holes and charred bodies. And so, typically, that's when the central bank comes in and goes, "Stop!" Right? They did it in two thousand and nine, two thousand eight. Really, they started two thousand nine with all the swap lines and so on and so forth. And this time, in March of last year, they were right in there, right away, with lines. That we've never seen extended to counterparties that we've never seen extended before. So, I think they're all too cognizant that a rapidly rising dollar is very, very destructive. But it tends to be that's when they tend to flip. That's the tender that tends to be the top of the dollar cycle. I think right here, right now, we've got a little bit of, you know, after last week, at the FOMC, which surprised everyone, including all the consultants who just specialize on talking to the policymakers. Um, I think some people got it right, but they were—that was a guess. When you actually talk to the policymakers, you had no clue that this flip was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, that creates a little bit of a problem now because you've got this move in short-term interest rates. I think it makes FX difficult to trade here. Uh, but I'm, as I said, I think there is no way we could end up with a real tightening cycle in this country without bringing down the equity market, bringing down the housing market, and then the Federal and, you know, pissing off the Biden administration because you're undermining what they're trying to do. Um, and I think, in the end, the, the Fed will just blink because Powell, certainly, you know, if we end up with, um, with Brainard, uh, these people aren't Volcker. They don't have a ramrod, you know, uh, back. They have Jello. Yeah, like we've seen this he's a flip flopper Powell so you know 15 to 20% down on the S&P they'll be right back again
0: yeah and that will potentially be the catalyst for that's that, what that, I dollar. that's you what know, I think and that that leads me to you know in addition to you know the macro framework that you use that's heavily reliant on these models um, you clearly use price action as the trigger for, Correct. for positioning um, and and that, that to me is also critical, right? You can't just say, hey, here's my macro view, put the right. trade on, right? It's So how do you, I guess, approach um, or look at this, uh, you know, pricing as, as a trigger
1: for putting the trade on? So um, I – it's not necessarily my skill set, but as I said, I've got, you know, of the sort of six professionals in the business, three of them have run money. And in one case, very – well, two of them, very, very large amounts of money as big PMs of big hedge funds. Um, And so, as I said, when we start off with kind of the house view, core view as the bias. Let's say, um, and we're doing one, for example, in Real Vision, we're going to talk about the bond bear market in uh, 2016, um, later this week. But it was kind of a, you, you, you look for the, the macro framework, where do we think things going? Ideally, you get, I really love it when you get a policy error. <laughs> when, you can, when you can punch the central banks in the face. and tell mm, I told you so. Um, which is what obviously we just did last week when they finally capitulated on the inflation story. Um, but then you, you start sort of looking at dynamics that could push have pushed the market the wrong way. The bond market is a classic. The bond market is a classic one because, like a lot of markets, the but this one particularly, they tend to lean heavily. They have to rely heavily on central bank verbiage, right? So you you get these central banks saying, we'll never raise rates. We'll never raise rates. We'll never raise rates. And we, back in the spring, said this is then going to end in one or two ways, for example. When they really do mean it, we're never raising rates. And then the long end of the bond market will go, Ciao, Bella. I'm out of here. Okay, And or to use a phrase that was directed towards Mark Carney at the Bank of England, they become the unreliable boyfriend. They say, I love you. I love you. Ooh, look at that. I don't (laughs) love you anymore. Right. And that's what we just had last week. So you the the. So you have this macro thing, you can see these precious building, but. None of it matters until the price confirms. Right. As I said, I'm not interested in pontificating about macroeconomics unless I can make money out of it. And money is only made by price confirmation. And so my three colleagues were much more experienced at running risk um, and managing portfolios. Tend to look at or take the sort of ideas and they'll start shifting through. Okay, if we're bearish on bonds, we know is it Bunds, is it Treasuries, is it BTPs, is it GILTs, whatever, Uh, is it JGBs, which frequently it is JGBs as we know tend to be very important. Um, We'll look at flow, we'll look at positioning. It's has something pushed those market, you know, forced bond investors, for example, into some extreme position, you know, has some central bank thing force people into the dollar to some extreme and are those forces starting to change underneath and then ultimately at the end of the day when you say look I think the macro's changing the market's the wrong way round and then you go is there a chart level that I can watch because then you can go you get decent entry level you get decent risk reward you know not always right straight away you might have to have a couple of times to have a go um, but you get it like when it goes, you're in at a decent level. You can run it. You can add to it. And that's when you can make big money out of it.
0: Well, it's such an important point because, um, you know, I think so many people don't, don't realize or understand that, you know, if you have a macro view that you're not necessarily positioned that way right now. That, you know, mm-hmm. you, you arrive at a macro view and then, then you're looking for the trade opportunity right. within that. And, and you're also looking for reasons why you could be wrong too. Right. But so many people think, okay, well, this is your view. You must be long this or short that, right. and and you know, and, and that's not necessarily the case. It also reminds me of you know some of what you just said too of Stan Druckenmiller, who said right. you know, uh, most of the big money he made was trading uh, against central bank mistakes, and I think most of the money he made was in the bond market, right. you know, too. So yeah. it's, it, but you know, Stan will famously go on TV and express a view, but he. he He's not necessarily positioned that way at the time and, and you could be looking to put on a trade at a later time and you know, yeah. and, and I think people don't necessarily respect that or appreciate that. No, that, that
1: and I think look, I mean the they're two fans, separate things. Yes, exactly. They're very different things. I mean it's just about mentally getting your head in the game. So mm-hmm. once again, I call it the lean, you know, am I bullish, am I bearish? Uh, from a macro perspective, in other words, if I'm bearish, the economy is not growing, my inflation is coming out. You know, am I bullish? We're just at the bottom of a cycle. Things are turning up, you know, and then you you mentally are looking in the right place. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't claim to have caught COVID uh, in terms of the, the news story. We did, you know, early in February, I was talking to friends in, in uh, Hong Kong and saying they bought. Loo paper? Why did they buy loo paper? You know, it's not a gastric thing. And friends going, yeah, but that's what's gone out of the shops of Costco in Hong Kong, right? There is no toilet paper (laughs) anymore, right? But we were lucky, Jesse, in the sense that we were looking in late 19. Things were slowing down already. We already had housing starting to falter because affordability had dropped to crappy levels. We already had an equity market that was showing signs of vulnerability. We already had signs that the inflation cycle was starting to pick. So we were mentally there and it was much bigger exogenous risk than I think any of us had imagined. But the point is, is it wouldn't have taken a lot to knock this thing down already. It wouldn't have seen the size of the decline, but you could have got a nice 20% correction in the equity market in early 2020 already. Yeah um and that's what i think is really important to have that kind of view
0: yeah well it's it's such a good point too because for for several months kind of prior to covid it looked like cyclical sectors within the stock market were dramatically underperforming and that was kind of a a warning signal and so I, i think yeah that macro kind of just informs you to be aware of the risks to whatever right. side of the equation so yes yeah it's uh, you know but in terms of this allowing price to uh inform your your trading or to d- d- you know uh, direct your trading there were a couple of uh charts specifically that you shared over the last few months on twitter yeah. that, that I found fascinating and they're related to your classic bubble framework and I'm I'm referring to specifically tesla and Bitcoin, right. which, you know, there are going to be probably people listening to this. that are uh, going to and, want to hang me from the <laughs> tree. But, you know, so many people have been calling these things bubbles for so long. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that your timing in these was, was just remarkable. And so talk to me about about this, uh, you know, the, the classic bubble framework and, and how
1: that helped you kind of look at these things. Right. First thing I would say, it would be bloody lovely if you could just pick the classic bubble as it entered the parabolic phrase because i wouldn't be sitting here now i'd be sitting you know on an island somewhere sipping a gin and tonic uh but it's much easier when you get into that parabolic move so the the classic you know there are the four um classic phases of a bubble there's kind of the stealth phase undiscovered uh, there's, there's discovery phase when the institutional money tends to come in to anything. It tends to double the price. At the end of it, you tend to have a uh, bear trap where the institutional money goes, oh, I've doubled my money, yours, and they sell just as that kind of retail or wider spread story is starting to kick off. And so you get this the correction. You tend to hit these various trend lines, which I've shown on the charts that I've done. You then enter the early beginning of the sort of mania period. Typically, you see a sort of 35 to 45 degree kind of line of ascent. Um, It goes through the previous highs, well through the previous highs, and then you enter the real parabolic move. Now, typically, the parabolic move, if you go back and you look at, uh, tends to have to be created with cash, right? So there's the only bubble that I've never quite understood is the tulip bubble because I can't see how that was a great story, right? I mean, whether you go back and look at the railway bubbles of the late 1800s, they were great stories, right? Or, or, you know, for example, those... bit of macabre fact of life though that if it hadn't been for all the investor money that got put into like the argentinian railways and the brazilian railways by british investors in the late 1800s we wouldn't have been able to kill millions of men in the first world war because prior to that we used to send them home in the winter because we couldn't feed them courtesy of what was referred to as bully beef which was tinned argentinian beef we could feed them and slaughter you know, all 12 months of the year, which is clearly, obviously, a very handy uh, outcome. But it's truly a transformative event if you look at it from a societal perspective. Yeah. Um, but the point is is, is you need a great story. The better the story, uh, the better it is. You need um, liquidity. Um, and that, if you look at prior bubble, say, 2013, that was coming from QE or whatever... Um, gold was and silver were initially that as well, when you look at early uh, bubbles there. And then you need, ideally, a trend in the currency. If you get a trend in the currency as well, so, for example, the Nikkei bubble you had, that was post-plaza. So the yen, the dollar was, central banks were intervening to drive down the dollar. And the yen was rising, so money was naturally attracted into Japan. Um, and had this proclivity to kind of pull up in Japanese assets. What do I buy? Oh, there's this thing called Sony. They've just come out with this Walkman with these strange orange headphones. I certainly had one. I don't. You might be a yeah, bit, yeah. yeah. You know, Trinitron TVs, right? They were yeah. buying the Rockefeller Center. They're going to take over the world. We were learning about them at business school. They were going to take over the world. And you just take this great story, a lot of um, of liquidity, and then you power it with this trend in the currency and you create what I refer to as a big boy bubble and then you kind of get this get this parabolic move. The parabolic move really does go, look like it's going to be the jet fighter and I use this analogy all the time. It looks like the F-16, if you've ever seen one, or the Raptor is going to go to the moon, right? It is going straight up and then you forget that at some point using conventional jets, it runs out of oxygen to burn. And at that point, it doesn't just fly off sideways at 35,000 feet it goes up and then it drops and that final move you tend to create some sort of like little neckline where you get its final up break move and then it just goes do do stores out drops hard and that's the first clue that you've got a problem now catching that we caught silver back in 2011 got really lucky but catching that Zenith is really really high sense that something's not right but it's very high you then drop hard you then bounce you bounce hard you should not break that prior high and all that really that neckline you should fail that's the bull trap and at that point you're done mm-hmm. unless something new comes out you are done and that was Tesla's rally from, I think, was it 475 on that initial sharp drop to 800, Mm -hmm. when it failed there, you were done. Because you've transferred from greed, which fueled all of that parabolic mania, to fear. And fear trades very, very differently. If you get the bounce, there's a bunch of people who are gonna go, thank you, Lord, (laughs) okay? all right, it wasn't a 1,000, it's 800, I was in at 400, yours. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that, uh, you know, there's a great
0: George Soros quote where he talks about bubbles and uh, about, you know, when a bubble's forming, he rushes in to buy throwing fuel on the fire. And that's what I think... A lot of institutions, you know, do. They see retail going after something, yeah. and now they're doing it algorithmically. They're yeah. watching, you know, wh- where the you know Reddit flows are going, and we're going to whether it's right. Citadel or who knows, yeah. it was piling in. But they also, you know, uh, institutional money knows this bubble framework, and they, they know once it's broken, it's not coming back right. again. And so, yeah, and but, I
1: saw some of it. You know, you can you talk about the Bitcoin thing. I, I sat cringing, you know, when you heard some of the. You know, someone like Stanley drucker is really a straight-up guy, you know, as are most of these guys. Some of them are a little, you know... I dealt with them in the currency days, in in the ERM crisis and stuff, some of these very big hedge funds, and they'd say one thing and do completely the other, or they'd find that they're all positioned one way, and one of them would go, oh, they're all long, right. Hit it hard and (laughs) smack the hell out of... You know, force the stops, and then they'd buy it. They're quite... You know, so when I hear some of these guys on TV, they might be pontificating longer-term views, but I know how these guys trade. Yeah, and right. they're saying, oh, you know, I'm buying Bitcoin. They might buy it for a 1,000 points or 2,000 points or 5,000 points, but their risk management is what they live and yeah. die by. And they are guaranteed you they are out by the time this thing comes right. down.
0: Yeah. There is no, um, you know... Uh just religious zeal for, for any security I mean, no. in, in these guys' portfolios, no. like you no. see among retail no. investors. No. Uh, no. And, yeah. the,
1: and, and look, I mean, one th- you, you raise an interesting point there because one of the frequent times you know that stuff is going really getting zealous is when I and I did it a couple of times on Twitter around Bitcoin where I threw out a negative view, and I would just get this deluge oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. of you know you non-believer. Right. And it's not that I'm not a believer. I've just, my big concern, and I've raised this on a macro insider piece that we put out, uh, the last one that ran, and did, I did, you know, and technically it didn't look right. But I just, I've always thought that the death knell for these cryptocurrencies would come when they challenge the man, right? When they challenge the central banks. Mm-hmm. And I thought in Bitcoin, and it still may be the case that it could come a lot Higher in the, in Bitcoin, you know, when the dollar's really under pressure in a couple of years from now, the fed's scrambling to try and hold the whole thing together. Maybe Bitcoin's a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand at that point and it's challenging the system. And they just go, sorry, you can't own it. They do what they did with gold back in the, in the thirties. What I didn't realize, and I think he's at play here is how determined the Chinese have moved recently to quash. Bitcoin domestically Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't challenge the digital Mm remember. And I, that's, you know, we were at a blacklist event, which is the sort of high end of the real vision thing. I was invited to uh, a couple of months ago in Aspen Um, and the older people around the table, uh, the ones with gray hair, not necessarily the richest, because those are the ones who'd made more money in Bitcoin than made sense. were much more skeptical of that. Than should we say the younger people who were uh, who had that religious zeal and I don't want to beat it out of people it's whatever you do whatever you invest in whether you believe in it and you should believe in it please put the risk management tools around absolutely it. I mean it's such a great point that I think you know I think that's the
0: only difference between and you know I've I've said for a long time I have a uh, huge amount of sympathy for the Bitcoin cause. I think yeah. it's, you know, it's, yeah. it comes from the right place. Correct. And you know, it, it really gets what's going on in the world monetarily and all yeah. this stuff. But I, but I I think your point is a valid one. The only thing that, you know, older investors have learned that maybe younger ones haven't is that risk management is what, yeah. you know, protects you from,
1: from... Yeah, I mean, in the... So last March, the first trade we did off the lows mm-hmm. was we bought silver at like 12, 16. We ran it up and we got out at like 26 and a half or something on average. And I got an email... On one, of the, on one of the internal chats on the Macro Insiders thing saying, you know, oh my God, thank you very much. I've paid my mortgage off. Right. And the first thing I wrote like to this guy was, congratulations, <laughs> never do that again because <laughs> right. you're running way too much risk. Right,
0: right. Well, that's, I think, <laughs> one of the signs of the current, right. where we are in the market currently is is that, uh, you know, the just perception of risk is not right. so skewed, you know. Uh, but, um I, you've let me take up so much of your time, Julian. I got, uh, you know, to, I guess to bring it back full circle, um, what do you do? You know, you, you live in this beautiful area. What do you do outside of the markets to stay sane in terms of, you know, getting out? You mentioned skiing, um, you know, and, and maybe how does
1: it inform or make you better at what you do, if, if at all? So it depends. I mean, as I said, if you ask my daughter over the last three week so I generally showered at six o'clock in the evening because I've been trying to lunch this <laughs> so yeah. I don't always get ballads jesse i yeah. I wish I did but I do find you know whether it's hiking or skiing uh hiking's different it just kills you up at eight thousand feet if you go for a big mm-hmm. hike up here and it really mentally you know you just have to focus on one step in front of the other and I, I do find that but skiing I just can't think of anything else. You're so focused and I'm really not a very sporty person. I'm not a very body aware person, but when I'm skiing, I'm just so focused on the angle of the ski, where my foot is in the boot, where my hands are, that it's almost like a yoga type experience for me for a day or whatever. I ski with the ski group that I do, you know, from nine till till sort of three in the afternoon I just don't think about work at all. Yeah. And it just helps me clean my head and, and is the payoff for times like the last 72 hours where I sat in my pyjamas until my daughter gone, you stink, daddy. What is it?
0: it's so important and my father-in-law you know years ago we were i think fly fishing together mm-hmm. and you know it was 20 plus years ago and he said to me you know these types of purist pursu- pursuits are so important that you know the things that you do whether it's playing golf or fly fishing or skiing that require so much of your focus that they don't allow you to think Correct. about markets or anything else that it, it yeah i mean it's it's a clean it's, sp- yeah, it's, it's a cleanse, yeah literally it's a
1: mental claims
0: uh, yeah and it's just crucial um You know, I I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do all this. I have to just tell everybody listening that uh, if you don't already follow Julian on Twitter, you need to. You're so generous with uh, your, you know, sharing information there. It's just at Julian, M-I-2. Um, is there anywhere else you'd like to direct people or anything else Well, yeah. Like look, just highlight? Before, no, before look, that? I
1: mean, if, if, if anyone is institutional and wants to get in touch with us, that's uh, just reach out to uh, support at mi2partners.com. And then um, if anyone's interested in the macro inside of things, they can either ping us there or they can go to the, uh, the Macro Insider uh, link in, uh, in Real Vision. We're bound to have some campaign soon. They always do. Um, and uh, you'll get a good deal. And uh, it, I, you know, I think we, we, we do make our money, Raoul and I.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's uh, you know it's been a, a pleasure to do this. I feel selfishly this has been a, you know a wonderful opportunity for me to pick your brain. I know my listeners are just going to get a ton out of this. Thank you so much for taking. Well, the
1: time. pleasure, Jesse. and you do great work, and I read all your stuff as well. So, uh, so yeah, it's great to be on the show. Thank you.
0: And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.